Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I am our college teaching director here at our Anderson campus. Uh, so normally in the semester, I am across the street uh, talking with college kids, uh, but they all left me. Uh, apparently, they have like home or internships or whatever, so they're gone. Uh, a few of them came back if you're here. Hi. But uh, we, uh, they mostly have left, and so I just kind of jump around all summer because uh, I got to talk to somebody. And so they brought me over here. I'll actually be with you guys again next week, and I think at some point else uh, in the summer. Uh, I'm so excited to be here. Always, always happy to jump across the street. Always happy to be with you and excited to show you this thing I found a couple weeks ago. What happened to that guy? Oh, he got electrocuted. What's electrocuted? Electrocuted. It it means getting like a lot of electricity rushing through your body all at the same time. It's it's really bad. So is that what happened to this guy? Uh, yeah, I think so. He he was playing with something that he shouldn't have been playing with, and he got electrocuted. Well, what was he playing with? Was he playing with scissors? No, no, no. He was he was playing with this. We shouldn't play with this. Oh, right, right. Well, what happened to his face? Uh, he's hurt. it, it hurts to get electrocuted, like a lot. Right. I get it. I get it. So he, so he just touched this thing, and then, did he die? No, no, it, it, it's not this part, it, it's what's inside. So did he die inside of there? No, he, he, he's not real, he's just a picture. Right, but how did he die? He didn't die. Mmm, because pictures can't get electrocuted, right? Right. Right. It's just a warning sign. Tells us to be careful around here because it's really dangerous. I know. Maybe if I just turn into a picture, I could go in there. No. No, don't go in there. Never go in here. Never do... Just... Just leave this whole thing alone. Just leave it. So how did he get inside of there? No. Yeah. Well, I don't even know. Look, there's a squirrel over there. Let's go chase it. Where? Yeah, over there. Come on. Come on. I don't see it. It's... Man, we've all been there, right? We've all found ourselves in a moment where we needed help, right? Where we needed to have something explained to us about how not to get electrocuted or uh, touching boxes. We needed to uh, be told at some point how to, how to speak, how, how to tie our shoes, how to get ready for the day, how to invest our money or go to work. Or someone at some point has had to teach us uh, instrumental kind of elements of our world and how we interact with it. At some point, we've needed a helper or a teacher or a guide in our lives. And the truth is, is that we still need that, right? We still find ourselves in moments, in situations where we need instruction, where we need guidance. We found ourselves needing to be told how to avoid sin, how to, how to understand and follow God's will. We've, we've found ourselves needing to be told how to best love our, our family and our friends. In fact, if we're following the words of Jesus Christ, we have to learn how to love our enemies, and the people who, who oppose us, we have to learn how to love them and care for them, and be gracious towards them. Gosh, which is hard. Right? That's all incredibly difficult. And so we need a teacher. Who will be our teacher and our guide and our helper in the midst of all that uncertainty? This summer, we're studying theology. 
We're walking through a number of kind of big theological ideas to to figure out sort of more, to learn more about the Lord and about how he's at work in our world. And we're doing this because God wants us to love him with all our minds, along with our hearts. The Lord wants us to give him our, our thoughts and our attention and our study. And he wants this from us because he recognizes that learning about him, right? When we learn about God, it allows us to better know God on an intimate relational level. And knowing God, that's the goal of life. That's why we're here. That's why last week, Buck Anderson uh, was here with you and speaking on the son, right? On Jesus Christ talking about Christology, understanding who he is, what he does, uh, kind of his role within our world. This morning, we're moving to the next person of our Trinity. We're moving on to the Holy Spirit. And we're looking at who he is, at what he does, specifically what he does to enlighten our world, to, to explain God's word and to equip God's people for his work. We're looking at how he equips us, how he acts as our helper, our teacher, and our guide. Right, to understand who the Holy Spirit is, we start in John 14. So if you have a Bible, or if you want to go there on your phone in an app, John 14 uh, is going to be kind of our anchor uh, chapter. We're going to be jumping around quite a bit to look at all the kind of spots where the Holy Spirit shows up in Scripture. But we'll come back to John 14 a few different times. So John 14, starting in verse 26, we see this key passage in understanding who the Holy Spirit is. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He tells them that the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, right here, this is, this is core in our, in our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. Uh, because when you look in New Testament uh, literature, when you look in Scripture, uh, it's a little bit ambiguous when, when you see the, the word Holy Spirit. The term there being used is actually uh, pretty broad. It's not exclusive to the Spirit. The, the Spirit right there is this term known as pneuma. And it was used outside of Scripture. It's, it's not original to our Bible. It's this idea of spirit or soul or, or, or breath. And what we see right here is this Holy Spirit. And, and that term being used is actually uh, neuter, meaning that there is no gender assigned to it. And yet, when we see the Holy Spirit talked about in Scripture, when we see Christ refer to the Holy Spirit, when we see other New Testament authors refer to the Holy Spirit, time and time again, they use a masculine pronoun, meaning he will teach you. Not it will teach you, but he will teach you. One of the core things we need to understand about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit is a he. He is a person. That's something that took me a long time. I grew up in the church, and yet it wasn't until I was about in college that that really sunk in. I was like, wait, the Holy Spirit's like a person? And it just it leveled me. Because I had always just sort of thought about it as this mystical kind of Star Wars force thing that that moved through the universe that that God maybe used in one way or another but the Holy Spirit is a person the Holy Spirit is a he and we see this throughout our New Testament scripture we see in Ephesians 4 that Paul is telling the church to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption he is a person and part of personhood means that you have feeling. You have emotions, you have emotional reactions to things. He can be grieved. The Holy Spirit 
can be grieved. When I was four years old, uh, I was, my mom painted my bathroom door. And as soon as she painted, she pulled me aside. She says, Jacob, Jacob, I need you to focus. Okay. Jacob, do not touch your bathroom door. Do not touch it. Do not touch. It is wet with paint. You will mess it up. You'll get it on your hands. Jacob, do not touch the door. Okay. You got it. Uh Okay. Okay. Great. My mom left. And then immediately what? I touched the door, right? No brainer. And so as, as soon as I touched the door, I have paint on my hand. It's smudged on the door. My mom returns. She's very upset. Uh, she sees what I've done and she actually starts to cry. Right? Now this stands out in my mind, uh, not just because she cried. Right? I made her cry lots of other times. But uh, this was a special cry because this was the one where as she was crying, I began to realize in my four-year-old mind, my mom is human. Right? I think she's people like me. Like this was a, this was a novel for me to really start to think about, wow, I think my mom is a person who like thinks stuff and feels things and is, you know, like me in many ways. And except she probably doesn't touch wet paint. Uh, good for her. And we, this is a huge realization for me. This is something that we need to realize about the Holy Spirit, that he is a person, that he has feeling, that he has emotion, that he can be grieved. Not only does he have feeling, but part of personhood is also having a will, having desires. We see Paul talking about the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, saying that all of these, he's referring to gifts and abilities that are given to the the church. He says, all of these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. In other words, the Holy Spirit has a will. He has desires. He has passions. He has, he has, has a will that, that he enacts on our world. He makes decisions of his own will. This is a large part of personhood. My, my wife and I, we have a one and a half year old daughter named Charlotte, who's amazing. Uh, seen here modeling her fashion choice for the day, uh, which included two bloomers on top of her pants. And she, uh, she has a will, uh, turns out. Uh, what we've discovered over the past few months. Uh, and it's slowly begun to strengthen. It's become to be more apparent. The fact that she has her own desires. She wants to make her own decisions. She has her own passions. Even at just a year and a half old. She has this will that's coming to the forefront. This was her yesterday. Uh, she was trying to feed our dog a goldfish. Uh, the cracker. Uh, not the animal. That would be really dark, but she is trying to feed our dog goldfish crackers and I wouldn't let her. I was like, no, it's not good for the dog. You know, it's not okay. I put the dog in our laundry room and Charlotte just loses her mind. Why? Because that goes against her will. It goes against her desires. A week ago, Charlotte and I went to Chick-fil-A, just the two of us. It was a super fun daddy day. And so I was like, hey, we're going to go to Chick-fil-A. It's going to be awesome. You're going to get some nuggets. You're going to get some fries. You're going to go on the slide. In that order, it's going to be wonderful. We walk into Chick-fil-A. As soon as we walk in, she starts yelling, Osh, 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 because uh, that's her term for slide. Uh, I don't know why, uh, but that's just what she says. And so as she's yelling, Osh, 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 uh, I'm like, no, like we're going to go later. We're, well, I promise. Like I get her nuggets. I get her fr- We lay it all on the table. I like lay out the mat that keeps it all clean. I'm doing a great job uh, being a dad and I'm, I'm getting it all ready for her. And she would not eat anything. She would not eat anything. And because the entire time she's just pointing at the slide, she's wanting to go to the slide. And so we went to the slide. Uh, she didn't eat anything because I'm a new dad and that's just what you do. Uh, so 
she has this will that, that's honestly really fun. It's challenging at times, but it's so fun to see this personality, to see this personhood emerge from her tiny little body. And that's what we see in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a will. He has a desire. The Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is a person. He is a he. And more so, more importantly than that, the Holy Spirit is a he and he is God. He's God. Genesis 1.1. The beginning of everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without, without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Right there, literally in the Hebrew, the ruah, meaning the breath of God, the Spirit of God, was already at work. Genesis 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 2. The beginning of all creation, the Holy Spirit has been involved in creation itself. The Holy Spirit is God. He has existed eternally. He has been involved intimately in the act of creation. He is God. This is what Jesus Christ refers to in John 14, 16. You see that he's talking to his disciples. He says, I'm going to ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now the Greeks, they had two terms for another, right? We just have one and we use it in multiple different ways. But the Greeks, they, they split it. They said there's two words to mean another. The first means that I want another meaning something completely different, right? I want another different type of thing than what I have right now. Right now I have uh, an apple and I want a banana, but they had another term. They had a second term for another. It meant I want another of the exact same thing of the same qualities, the same characteristics. I want another, I have an apple. I want another apple, right? I want the two of the same things. I want another one right here. When Jesus Christ is talking about this other helper, another helper, wouldn't you know the term that he uses was the second one. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have been serving as your helper, right? I've been instructing you and guiding you and teaching you and comforting you and empowering you. He says, but there will be another just like me. Another of the same quality, the same characteristic, another helper who will come alongside of you, who will be with you forever. He refers to the deity of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 28. He's ascending into heaven. He's giving his disciples this kind of last command, what we call the great commission. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. And what we see here in the kind of the the nuance of the Greek is this name is singular, meaning that the name, this name is shared by all the parties listed afterwards. So this is one name shared by the father and the son and the Holy spirit. This is one name being God, the father. God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Three in one. The Trinity is mysterious. It is something that that men and women have dedicated their entire lives to studying and explaining. And I'll tell you, we can can wrap our minds around little bits and pieces of it, depending on what the Lord reveals to us. But it is something that we'll never fully grasp. This side of eternity. How our God could be three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, sharing the same name, God. The Holy Spirit is God. And he's at work in our world. Now, if you have any interest in studying more, again, this is a brief overview. We're, we're not going to be covering the exhaustive ministries of the Spirit or, or all the finer details of the Holy Spirit this morning. We just can't, right? Just time-wise, we just can't. So if you have any interest in studying more on the Holy Spirit, on who he is, on his personhood, on his divinity... 
I would encourage you to read this book called The Holy Spirit. Straightforward. I love it. Good job, Charles Ryrie. And this is a great book on this subject. If it's something that you want to study more this summer or something you've been interested in for a while, The Holy Spirit, Charles Ryrie. Excellent, excellent writing. Excellent explanation. Excellent study on the Holy Spirit. He is God. And as I said, he's at work. He's at work in the world. He has been since the very beginning, right? We saw him in Genesis 1, already at work in creation. And he continued to work throughout, as we read our Old Testament, we see the Spirit actually show up. Uh, But his ministry was different at that time. His ministry in, in our Old Testament, as we're reading it, what we see is time and again, typically he would rush upon someone and then rush away, right? So it was sort of this temporary thing where he would rush upon someone, uh, an individual for temporary uh, enlightenment or maybe empowerment. Uh, but then just as quickly as he appeared, he would, he would leave. Right? He would leave that individual. Uh, we see this referred to in Nehemiah 9, where Nehemiah says that the, the spirit would come and, and instruct God's people. The Holy Spirit would come upon leaders, come upon teachers, and allow them to kind of give general instruction and guidance to God's people. We see in Zechariah 7, where the Spirit is attributed, it's credited for all the prophecies, all the foretellings, everything that we read in our scripture, all the things we see in our our major prophets, our minor prophets, these, these incredible insights, these incredible prophecies of things that would come about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years in the future. What we see in Zechariah 7 is that this is all, all of those things were attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. All of those words, all of that prophecy was inspired by, was spoken by the Spirit through those prophets, through those people. The Holy Spirit, one of my favorite times, pops up in in Judges 14. In Judges where where God has this one guy, a guy named Samson, uh, who God's raising up to be a judge, meaning a redeemer for his his people at that time. And Samson uh, was known for, he was really, really strong. Uh, He was pretty dumb. And so he was walking along a road and a lion pops up and attacks him. This lion shows up. And so what we see in Judges 14 is the Holy Spirit rushes upon Samson in this moment. Okay, so just boom, rushes upon Samson so that he could tear the lion in half, right? And I quote, as one tears a young goat. Mm. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like that. Uh, Best metaphor you'll see in all scripture right there. Use it everyday life. Uh, Let's open the banana as one tears a young goat. That's awesome. So... We see this spirit moving. We see the spirit working and ministering to God's people all throughout history. Uh, But when the New Testament rolls around, when specifically Pentecost, when Jesus Christ comes, we we see this very uh, different ministry. We see his role change. We, We see not just this sort of rushing upon and rushing away, but we see the spirit begin to reside within individuals. He doesn't just come in and go away. He, he sets up shop. He resides within individuals for continued assistance, for continued guidance. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 14. That we already read that I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Christ says, man, the Spirit's going to come and he will stay with you. He's remaining with you. He's saying this because Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that he's going to leave. He says, but there will be one, a helper who will stay with you forever. And he's not just given to anybody, right? He says the world at large does not receive him in this way. 
It is only God's family. It's only his sons and daughters, the ones who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Those who were children of wrath, who've been adopted into the family of God, sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. He says, those are the people who receive the Spirit and he will dwell with you. He will be your helper, which is a loaded term, right? Even if you're reading other translations, you'll see there are other terms used there other than helper, uh, guide, uh, counselor, teacher, uh, advocate. There are other terms because that term, that Greek term is loaded, man. It's got a lot of nuance. There's a lot kind of to, to learn and interpret from that very intentional word used, that intentional term. Uh, literally, uh, it's, it's basically one who comes alongside. Okay, that's kind of the, the broad definition. It's, it's one who comes alongside. And in fact, it's the same term uh, that's used in our, in our scripture, in our New Testament, to describe the marriage relationship where the wife is a helper in the sense that she comes alongside of her husband. It's this beautiful, beautiful illustration of someone who's just with you and working with you and, and, and working next to you. Right? Some of us have gotten to experience that. Many, most of us are going to experience at some point that, that, that relationship, even just here, that glimpse of this incredible divine relationship through our marriages. My wife and I, Susan, uh, I mean, we've been married for a few years and, and we have, I've had the privilege of just seeing her come alongside of me in so many different ways. She has come alongside of me and, and she has worked to raise our daughter and she does an incredible job at that. Incredible, wonderful mother. She can probably take our daughter to Chick-fil-A like no problem. I don't know, I'm assuming. She can do that. She's just that good. She's come alongside of me in ministry, right? It's not just me that, that ministers with college students. My wife is, is with me. She is alongside of me in that. She disciples girls. She meets with leaders. She invites people into our home. She's super gracious and like makes cookies and stuff. I would never do any of that. People would not like me nearly as much if it wasn't for my wife being alongside of me in that ministry. She comes alongside of me on a personal level. She, she supports me. She loves me. She cares for me. She comforts me. She listens to me. I can't do what I do without her. And that's what God has promised through the Holy Spirit, that we would all have this helper, this one who would come alongside of us forever. So what does he do, right? What specifically is he doing as he walks alongside of us, as he dwells with us, right? Now, again, there are so many ministries of the spirit. We are not going to cover all of them. This is not an exhaustive list. This is a very broad, brief kind of flyby look. But, but the spirit, I, I feel the spirit put on my heart to share with you three specific ministries of the spirit. The, the first being that he has come to enlighten the world, that he has come to explain God's truth. Secondly, and thirdly, that he has come to equip God's people for his work. We see this idea of enlightenment in John 16. We'll skip ahead a couple chapters. And Jesus is still talking to his disciples. He says, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Again, Christ is preparing his disciples for the fact that he's eventually going to leave. He's preparing them for Matthew 28, where he's going to ascend into heaven, where he's going to go prepare a place for them in his father's house. But he says, but you're not going to be alone. 
I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to send you this helper and it's going to be so much better for you. Because Jesus is saying, I I willingly poured myself out. I took on the form of humanity. So I'm limited. I can hang out with you guys. I'm not going to go, you know. But he says, but the spirit that will come, he will reside with, will stay with all believers everywhere forever. So this is a wonderful thing. And when he comes, he's going to convict the world. In other words, when he comes, he's going to continue Jesus Christ's ministry. When we see this idea of convicting the world about sin and righteousness and judgment, or this is what Jesus came to do, to proclaim these truths, to let us know that, yeah, we are sinners, meaning we are people who are fallen and broken, who have failed. And one day there's a judgment coming when all of that's going to catch up with us. And when we stand before God and he sees the sin in our lives, he sees the failure, what he will do is he will have to, because he is perfectly just, he will banish us. He will separate us from himself for all of eternity. So that's the judgment that is coming. But, but, there's a righteousness that is offered to us. Not a righteousness that we can do or earn on our own. As Tim was saying earlier, it's not something that we can just do that somehow God approves of us. Instead, Jesus Christ lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserved. And he rose again three days later to prove God's power over sin and over death. And he says, if anyone trusts in me, if you just believe in me, if you just ask, if you just call out in my name, you can be forgiven. And you can be accredited my righteousness that I, Jesus Christ, earned. You can have it. I give it freely to all who believe. The Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of that. To preach that. Just before the service, Tim was telling me about this guy who was kind of a newer believer. And he was looking back at kind of his experience in growing up in the church and doing different things. And he said that at one point uh, in growing up, he had been reading uh, writings by Martin Luther, right? an instrumental figure, uh, a big figure in church history. He says he starts reading the works of, of Martin Luther. And he says that, you know, when he read them earlier, kind of in his past, he's like, yeah, I, I didn't keep reading it because I just, I didn't see the gospel. Like I just, I never, the gospel is just not there in the writings of Martin Luther. And he was sharing this with a friend, and the friend was like, uh, hey, maybe you should go back. Maybe you should go back. Now that you're a believer, you should go back and read that. Look, look and see. Read some of those letters again. Read that book again. So the guy went back, opens it up, and realizes, oh, man, there is gospel everywhere. Like, it's just constant. Because that's how Martin Luther wrote sees the gospel presented again and again referred to, and he realized, oh my goodness, yeah, I wasn't getting it. Not because it wasn't there, but because I wasn't convicted by the Spirit. Because it takes the work of the Spirit to, to op- open my eyes to this truth. Man, yet so many times we take it upon ourselves to bring about that conviction. Right? We feel as if it's, it's our role and our responsibility to, to, to say the right thing or point the person in the right direction or, or explain it to them better or pass a certain bill or do a certain thing or have a certain uh, process or, or procedure or organization that will, con- that will show people the error of their ways. I'll tell you, that's not what we see in Scripture. When we look in Scripture, we see that conviction comes through the work of the Spirit, not by us. 
In fact, if we were going to listen to Jesus Christ, he says, you, you might want to pay attention to the log in your eye before you care about the splinter in someone else's. Now, is there a need for conviction in our world? Absolutely. Are there people in your lives who need to, to realize that they are sinners, that, that maybe they need to return to the Lord or maybe they need to call to the Lord for the very first time ever? Are there people like that? Absolutely. Does God use us to maybe minister to them and speak to them in certain times, in certain ways? Absolutely. But is it our job to convict them, to, to, to show them how wrong they are? No. No, it's not. It's really not. It's the work of the Spirit. Imagine if we trusted that. Imagine if we prayed and asked the Lord to send his spirit to convict the people that need it. And imagine if we recognized that probably the very first person on the list is us. How humbling would that be if we were willing to ask the Lord to convict us first and foremost of the sin and of the error in our lives the work of the spirit. He's come to enlighten us to to convict the world. He's also come to explain God's word, God's God's truth, God's will. We see this in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul's saying that all these things, he's talking about uh, just sort of wisdom and knowledge about God. He says, all these things God has revealed to us through the spirit. He says, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. This is the idea that we've all come to recognize in life that I can't read your mind, right? If I want to uh, know exactly what my wife is thinking, if I want to know what my boss is thinking, if I want to know what my kids are thinking, I need them to tell me. I can kind of pick up on hints and body language. Someone like hits me. I'm like, okay, you're upset probably (laughs) on some level. But the reality is that we need people to speak. That's the only way to know someone's true thoughts and and spirit and mind. Paul says this is exactly true of God. That we, in order to understand the thoughts and the will of God, we have to listen to God telling it to us. God has to explain it to us. And he says, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit who knows the depths of God, the Holy Spirit who is God, communicates to us, informs us, instructs us. He explains God's will to us. He explains God's word to us by, and he helps us in, in guiding our steps, right? He guides us our, in our study of scripture. We in and of ourselves can't figure this stuff out. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, that God has revealed himself in such a way, he's working in such a way that we in and of ourselves with our worldly wisdom, with our worldly constraints, we cannot understand God. That even the greatest of all worldly wisdom will never understand God. Unless he's speaking. You can read scripture. You can read religious books by Martin Luther and other authors. And unless the Holy Spirit of God is moving through that, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. That's why so often we become frustrated as believers looking at a world who seems to not get it. And we want to like try to explain it to them and punch it into their heads. And we want to tell them, like, no, this is the way it works. But the problem is that they still see God as this sort of ambiguous, vague, like Facebook poster kind of person who would put something like just sort of a frowny face. Like they're like, I think God's like kind of upset. And they ask like, what's wrong, God? And he's like, nothing, right? That's how they perceive the Lord as operating. Sometimes we perceive the Lord as operating in this way. That we feel like, oh, God's disappointed with me, but... I don't really know what it is. I, I, don't, I, I feel like he's, just, he's hiding that from me right now. And we feel like there's this ambiguity and this vagueness to the Lord. 
We feel like he's someone who would, who would tell us something like, I don't want to talk about it. And if you have a really good friend, someone like Brett, everyone needs a Brett who can say, then why did you post it? I love that. Thank you, Brett, for your ministry. <laughs> but if we, we feel like at times that this is how the Lord operates, that this is how God communicates to us. And yet when we read scripture, man, we, we can know that that's not true. There are going to be times where not all of our questions are answered. There are going to be times where we don't fully grasp the entirety of every situation. But we know that God is good. And we know that when we seek him, and we know that when we ask him, if we are truly asking the spirit to reveal God's will, to reveal, to work through God's word, man, he is faithful to do so. He wants to do that. He wants to commune with us. It's so often... We think of God being vague and ambiguous because the truth is that we take it upon ourselves to make the right decisions. We, we take it upon ourselves to study scripture in just the right way. We think that if I just have these certain methods, if I, if I line out the pros and cons of this decision or make pie graphs, we can really figure out where to go to lunch. And, and if we have like these, you know, like Bible study, like I'm going to observe and interpret and apply and I'm going to do all these different things, then I can make sense of it. And yet what we see time and again in scriptures, that's not going to happen. I can spend all my time thinking of like sermon illustrations and trying to bring together a talk and move in these points and bring it all together and make it rhyme or whatever. And the truth is that so many times I still run into this wall where I'm thinking, why is this not coming together? And then I realize that, oh my goodness, I have not even prayed about this all day. I have not asked the Lord to actually work through this preparation, to work through this process. Because we're human. We're fallen. We're broken. We're going to continue to rely on ourselves and we should be relying on the Spirit. Imagine if we ask the Spirit to guide our steps, to guide our study. If you want to study more into that, if you want to read more about that, uh, I would strongly recommend this book, Decision Making in the Will of God. Wonderful book written by a former professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Excellent, excellent work on how to understand, how to navigate, how to interact with the will of God in our lives. It's absolutely wonderful Spoiler alert, it's the Holy Spirit. Uh, but there's still a lot of other good things in there to read. So uh, you, should, you should check it out. If that's something that, that's kind of been on your mind, on your heart lately. The Holy Spirit has come to enlighten us, to convict us about sin. He's come to explain God's will and words in our lives. And the Holy Spirit has come to equip God's people for his work. First Corinthians 12, Paul says there are varieties of gifts that are the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Paul is saying, look, there's going to be all these different gifts and abilities that I'm about to explain that I'm about to talk to you about, but realize right now that it all comes from the exact same source. It all goes to for the exact same purpose. It is all from the Lord and it is all meant for for his glory and the common good. So you need to recognize that. That the Holy Spirit is going to give you gifts and abilities. going to empower you in incredibly unique and wonderful ways. And the Holy Spirit will produce fruit in your life. That's why Galatians tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Attributes that we want and desire. And we're promised, we're told that the Holy Spirit will produce that in our lives. 
And it's not just for our good, right? It's not just for our benefit. This is what's so incredible about the work of the Spirit. It's not just within us for our own benefit. But in fact, when the Holy Spirit does these things, when he provides these gifts and and creates this fruit, what he does is he works not just in us, he works through us for the benefit of others. Just a few weeks ago, I was in Dallas uh, taking some classes at seminary, and I was staying with some good old friends of mine, some good college buddies of mine. And one of them, uh, he came from a really rough background, I mean, a rough home, unstable environment, uh, very dysfunctional, very broken in a lot of different ways. And one of the things that kind of kept him through, that kind of got him through it, though, was his relationship with his grandfather. His grandfather was a wonderful Godly Christian man, uh, just loved my friend well, supported him, was kind of always a stable, foundational relationship all growing up and even to this day. But then a couple weeks ago, as I was staying with them, late one night, my friend got a call. His grandfather had passed very suddenly, very unexpectedly. And my friend was actually, he was house-sitting for some people. And so uh, another friend of ours and myself, we went to him. So two of us went, and we went to go see him. It was like 2 a.m. on a Tuesday. And we went, and as soon as we walked into this house where he was sitting, man, we just, he was broken. He was in shock. And one of the things that he kept saying was that he didn't know what to pray. Man, many of us have been in that situation where some traumatic event has occurred, where some unexpected situation has arisen, and we're just, we're stopped in our tracks, and we we realize that we don't even know what to pray. We don't know what to ask for. And so when we were sitting with him, we, we talked a little bit, we were quiet for a long time. But eventually we prayed together. And so my, my friend and I, we, we kind of started and we were praying for uh, just the Lord to kind of oversee the details, the, the decisions that were about to be made. My friend was, uh, the friend who lost his grandfather, he was waiting to get a ride down to Brian to see his grandfather kind of say goodbye. And we were just praying for safety and, and that uh, the family would come together okay, that, that, that there wouldn't be too much drama, too much dysfunction, uh, because there's still a lot of broken people and it was not going to be an enjoyable experience to be around all those people all at one time. So we were praying for, for those kind of issues that God would kind of ease those details. And, and eventually our friend who, who lost his grandfather, he began to pray. And the first thing out of his mouth, was he thanked God for how good he was. He thanked the Lord for being good and trustworthy. He thanked God for the life that his grandfather had lived. He thanked God for for the impact that his grandfather had had on, on other lives. He thanked the Lord that his grandfather was now at peace, that his grandfather was with his own wife. His grandfather was done with this broken, dysfunctional, world. And I'll tell you, the the peace that I saw in that, the comfort and the joy that the Holy Spirit was able to produce in his life, man, that didn't just benefit my friend. It benefited me. It impacted me to see the Spirit work in his life. And then he got to see just a few days later as he goes and he joins with those family, he was able to share the gospel. He was able to be a minister to so many broken people because of the work in the spirit of the spirit in him and through him. So often we take it upon ourselves 
to say the right thing, to do the right thing. But imagine if we would just trust God, that we would ask the Spirit to guide our steps, to equip us with his gifts, to produce within us his fruit. This morning we're taking communion. As the men are preparing it and and about to deliver it and distribute it, I'll tell you that communion is an incredible gift. Uh, Not in that it's it's a mystical thing that that somehow connects us with the Lord uh, or, or, you know, accomplishes some great task. The communion is an incredible gift in that it serves as a wonderful reminder of who Jesus Christ is, of what he's done, of what he accomplished, right? It's, It's a reminder of his life and death and resurrection. A reminder that all believers, anyone who has put their trust in Jesus Christ, they are invited to share in this moment, to share in this remembrance. But more so than that, it also reminds us that we're not self-reliant. It reminds us that we're not here on our own just trying to figure out life. It reminds us that God is our advocate, that God is our father, that God is our helper, that the spirit has been given to every believer as a teacher and as a guide. So as the men begin to distribute the elements, I would just encourage you to take a few moments of just silence and reflection to to thank the Lord first and foremost for his spirit, for the Holy Spirit that that resides within every believer. If you're not a believer, I would encourage you to just think about it. To maybe make a plan to talk with the person who brought you to come and talk with me about that, about that relationship that you don't have with the God of the universe. As a believer, you thank the Lord that the Holy Spirit has been given to you as this gift, as this down payment of your future, eternal life, and as a current help in your daily life. Thank the Lord for what he's accomplishing. And we'll share in this remembrance in a moment. Apostle Paul explains to the church in Corinth about communion. He talks to them about this beautiful time where they can regularly come and, and just and pause and reflect on what Christ has accomplished. And so he tells them in 1 Corinthians 11 that after he, meaning Jesus Christ, had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way. Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. God, we do want to be people that proclaim the beauty of your gospel. God, we want to be people who reflect that truth, that God who live lives that that demonstrate a a faith and a reliance upon your spirit. So let us be those people. Let us be people who rely on you for for conviction, God, who ask for it in, in humility. Lord, let us be a people who rely on you to explain your will and word to us. God, to guide our steps, Lord, to guide our study of your scripture. Lord, let us be a people who rely on you to equip us for your work. 
God, let us be people who, who are just tools to be used in your hands. God, clay to be molded by you, the great potter. So Lord, bless our weeks. Lord, use this week. Let us be impacting lights to the world around us. Amen. All right, well, we love you guys, and we'll see you in a week.